Hello, and welcome to Cringe Benefits, the podcast that's all about your favorite things from childhood and your grown-up reservations about them. Today, I am talking to Reed Bryce. Reed is a comedic actor and writer in Los Angeles, best known for co-hosting the Sorting Hat podcast and advice articles on ADHD for Healthline. Bryce's work deals most closely in themes around poverty, mental health, and gender. Hi, Reed. How are you today? Howdy, how's it going? (laughs) (laughs) It's good. Let's pretend that we weren't just talking for 45 minutes off mic because we had so much to catch up on and we forgot we needed to record today. That's like pretty much the theme of our friendship. As soon as we get together, like, we got to talk about everything. (laughs) I don't think I've ever had a conversation with you that lasted like 10 minutes. (laughs) I don't think I've ever had a conversation with you where we like decided to talk about one thing and then we talked about that one thing immediately and then we were done. Like it's usually... I, I can't keep my brain. It's like, it's like, I, I'm at this point, I've given up on trying to even control what direction my brain's going to go. You know, it's like my, my own brain is like, is like my bohemian girlfriend and you'll Simon play. <laughs> <laughs> like I just need to let her do what she does. <laughs> you mean it's cute, flighty, misogynistically portrayed. And at the end we'll wind up with a grumpy old man. Oh yes. I, that, that seems pretty, pretty accurate. It, it, pretty accurate. Pretty oh, accurate. Yeah. The grumpy old man is me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Reed, how old were you the first time you saw Kids in the Hall? It is one of those very sort of like seminal moments. This is so stupid. This is like this shows you exactly what kind of nerd I was as a kid. Uh, it was mm-hmm. like it was like 1999. This it would have been like the summer of 1999. I or like right before I went into high school. Uh, and when was that? 1999, 2000. Uh, and I was I was staying home from school because I. I was like, just not doing well there. It was a rough patch during uh, my childhood, especially. And so I was home just flipping through the channels because I just didn't want to have to think about my own life. And I saw this, this, the sketch on Comedy Central come up where this dude is just standing outside of his friend's house and just keeps screaming his name to like, to get him to come out of his trailer. And the guy never does. And I was like, what is this? This is weird. And it's very funny because I can't even find the sketch now. I was trying to remember what it was the other day because it ends with the it's because it's kind of just two like burnout sort of like white trash dudes, and it ends with the dude not being able to hear his friend shouting to him even when like the the trailer is on fire and you see the smokes and and the the, the light flickering in through the lights. Even that he doesn't wake up for it. And I don't remember what the punchline was or anything else, but I do remember just being like, "This is so weird." What is this? And I think that's a lot. If that's your first impression of Kids in the Hall, when you see it, I am not surprised. <laughs> no, totally. Like, I think I came to Kids in the Hall sort of the same way because it was, there was like late 90s, early 2000s, there was like this comedy power hour on Comedy Central afternoons where you would get an hour of like, uh, an old Saturday Night Live that had been edited for cable, and then you would get an hour of Kids in the Hall right after. Yeah. And I remember I, I would watch Saturday Night Live, and I would like get all or like most of the jokes. I mean, I was like thirteen, so I didn't necessarily understand all of the politics because I was just not that precocious. I would get all or most of the jokes, and then Kids in the Hall would come on, and I'd be like, "Okay, <laughs> this is operating on a level to which I do not yet subscribe." Uh, and maybe we should we huh. can get a little bit into it uh, after we like kind of like do more of the work of like 
talked about who they were, but I, I, I understand exactly what you mean. It has a completely different energy pacing. Uh, yeah. And I also loved uh, the first sketch show. They also, they experimented a lot more with like even uh solo performance. Like if you look through the kids in the hall, uh, like they do more monologues as in character monologues, this, the, the sort of character work that only became uh, more popularized and mainstream, like in the last few years, a lot of your favorite comedians working now have gotten their work off of like the idea of doing character. And the kids in the hall were doing this on TV, like in the eighties. And so it's really interesting to, to like, look at that and be like, Oh, that was definitely being done. Why did it, why was it not a convention at all through like the two thousands and 2010s? I don't know. But like how is how is the way that the kids in the hall explored character work different from the way that like Saturday Night Live did? Because like uh you know, the Saturday Night Live is often typified by its memorable characters, right? Like we all have favorite Saturday Night Li- Saturday Night Live characters, but it's a very different application. I think it all comes down to uh okay, so uh I can give a little I should uh, backtrack a little bit cuz I think knowing who they are uh and where they were in the comedy landscape at the time will help a lot. So the kids in the hall, uh, they, they started as uh, disparate uh, writing partners in, in groups out of, of out of uh, Canada. I believe, uh, if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, some of them came from like Calgary uh, and, and some of them. They ended up in the province uh, of Toronto because Toronto, uh, for a long time, it's it still to, today is considered like uh, it, like the, the, the place that you go to if you want to be a comedian in, in Canada. It's, it's very much like the, the parallels between Chicago. Uh, as far as like, yeah, the, the live performance comedy theater world, uh, that's where the, the, the Toronto, the second city is in Toronto, uh, like it is in Chicago and stuff. And, and, uh, for a long time, professional writing pools were being pulled out of institutions like that, like the second city and, uh, the groundlings here in, in Los Angeles, obviously, and stuff like that. So a lot, a lot of like where, just like how you write, how your comedy brain even operates they were very, very completely different systems at the time because, like, people were still developing what comedic theory was for sketch and how it worked on television. Uh, it was, you know, uh, in a way that was, like, different from, like, the variety, uh, very, like, surface-level sort of, like, parody <laughs> and satire that you would see. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The kids in the hall were also coming out. They were a generation that uh, they were the, – the, they were one of the first, like, Generation X – uh, sort uh, uh, generation of comedians, and so they were coming from a very different uh, point of view and perspective than the the, the writers and, and actors of uh, SNL, say, in like the seventies, uh, where they were, you know, they they were directly in the the hippie movement, the flower child movement, and that that is that shows a lot why uh, there were a lot of, there was a lot of creative freedom around identity with the SNL writers for the first five years. Uh, and right, this right. way, it, it was, instead of being like from that hippie flower child uh, and or like rock and roll sort of bad boy thing, like with the Belushes and stuff, these guys were like, like a punk's a punk is like the best way I can put it, but not necessarily like, like specifically like punk music sort of thing, but just in a sort of like subversive to the system, uh, not necessarily ever for an actual reason, but a lot of it was just getting out <laughs> a lot of angst and like pent up frustration uh, of the systems of, of, you know, being the generation after baby boomers and feeling like completely overlooked in a lot of ways. Uh, as, as the uh, resident kids in the hall nerd, what can you tell me about like the, the different backgrounds of uh, the kids? 
as uh, as creators? So to the best of my knowledge, and I know about some better than others, uh, McCullough's work very much uh, is it, like he's more introspective and loves dissecting uh, the way that like the suburbs uh, work and like deconstructing that because he's a, he was a kid who came from the s- suburbs. He also has a big influence in uh, in uh, artists like David Lynch and Bruce McCullough is probably the one who's the most like artsy fartsy art house about that. That's why you do you get everything from him from like like weird silly songs like these are the Daves I know where he just lists all the Daves that happen to be in his life or a song about tear humans. <laughs> then you also get things uh, like his uh, uh, Eraser Head thing, which is basically just a short film about how he is so disassociated from reality that he when he needs to take a vacation from work, he just watches the David Lynch film Eraserhead on loop. And it's just like very feels like a David Lynch piece, like or like he's attempting a David Lynch piece in, in its own right. Like that guy runs that gamut uh, fully. His parents, one of his parents or both of them came from England. So he had a lot of uh, that. He like if you if you're like, oh, yes, he has a lot more of what feels like British senses, uh, sensibility in his work. That's probably because that was what he was watching growing up. Uh, Kevin McDonald, like I said, he and Foley both met each other, um, I think, in Second City classes and became uh, writing partners that way. And uh, the Second City, uh, the way that they approach comedy is just have a strong point of view, make it political. Uh, and in their, in their live reviews, they always have music elements, but it really does get derived from like a political point of view. And a lot of, uh, a lot of early, uh, like SNL being so politically motivated and with a specific point of view, instead of the more general apolitical view that they have now, that's probably why it feels like it hit harder. It was, they had that same, uh, second, second city approach. Uh, McCullough and McKinney came from theater sports, which I don't remember if that is more of... Uh, outside of uh, Toronto sort of thing or if, if theater sports started there uh, and they did a lot more things and were um, able to get more into cerebral uh, like improv as its own art form and sketch as you know a performance art like they were able to get more into those those like letting it have deeper meanings and and uh, doing mostly character-driven work instead of, like, punchline-driven work or, you know, not having to just be necessarily, like, one straight man and one goofy guy knocking it back and forth. Though there's a lot of that because that's just the, the greatest comedy convention. And then Scott Thompson, like I said, he came from a very working-class mentality. That's why he plays a lot of uh, guys who would be, you know, more considered on, like, the, the straight-passing side, uh, mm-hmm. the more rugged side. He like He liked to also then play up his femininity through characters like Buddy Cole because of that. So yeah, they all came from very, I think working class backgrounds. Uh, they all, uh, McKinney and, and uh, McCullough, uh, they have more of like an artsy fartsy, just in my, my opinion, sort of like approach to things. And I say that they were like my favorites at the time. No, they totally <laughs> did. I mean, later yeah. Mark McKinney was one of the co-creators of one of the most like artsy fartsy but beloved Canadian shows ever, Slings and Arrows, which is Slings entirely yeah, 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 yeah. which got it. Uh, all of them do fantastic work even even now. Uh, uh, Kevin McDonald, uh, he wrote from they. Another thing that really made them different from the from their contemporaries like at, at SNL. Cause they were both Lauren, My- Lauren Michaels uh, was the executive producer of both these shows, by the way, that's why I, I compared them back and forth so much. Yeah. Uh, Cause uh, the way that they even got the show was they broke the kids in the hall broke up briefly because McKinney and McCullough were going to go be writers on SNL. Oh, and I did read about where, this. Go on. That's where, yeah, that's where uh, Lauren was able to like 
become aware of them. And then uh, he was like, we need to teach you how to write for TV. Cause they were, I think just a live act at that point, but um, we'll, we'll teach you the structure, but really we want to also maintain as much of this really visceral sort of uh, Gen X uh, point of view to comedy where it is really like not being afraid to go into dark subject matter. So you would have pieces like uh, Kevin McDonald's daddy drank, which mm-hmm. is, it opens with him doing a monologue bit. This is, the kid, like I said, the kids do monologue bits like nobody's business. Uh, daddy drank was Kevin McDonald talking about like growing up, my daddy drank. And then it would go, it would cut to a filmed piece that was first person perspective of, of, of Kevin McDonald's father late at night, played by Dave Foley, just busting into his room really drunk to let, mm-hmm. like just to say mean shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, being like, open up like, hey, I wanted to let you know. I, got, I was going to get you a puppy for your birthday, but then I decided to eat him. I don't remember if that is exactly the exact same thing, but it would just keep going. Like, and, and you could tell that McDonald was working through some shit on that sketch. Mm-hmm. It was very, very dark. It didn't necessarily leave on a note that made you feel safe for him. And a lot of, a lot of times when we write uh, jokes, if you want to do, if you want to talk about the darkness in your own life or whatever like that, you, we do like uh a safety net where you have to give a perspective of like, I'm fine, by the way, this is fine. Or like make just make the audience realize that like there will be a resolved issue. Uh, The kids in the hall didn't always let people have that. They would sometimes just like leave them on a note of like, Oh, that was really dark. So, so I'm going to abandon my earlier point and I'm going to drag you back to like, you just said you were obsessed with them as a kid. So like, now I want to hear more about, your your first your first in, uh, introduction to them yeah. was that trailer sketch. Yeah. Then and, like then what happened? And then of course I was like, what the hell is this? I started, like I said, this is like ninety nine two thousand, and at that and I was poor, so at that point, uh, like a lot of other comedy shows at the time, I would just tape them on VHS. So like I would I would just like make sure I taped that every day uh, on Comedy Central. I'd get my mom to do it if I was school. I was taping like Mystery Science Theater. Uh, and it, it really was like you, you like, you found things either on tape or online. And I was a very online child. Uh, a lot of people <laughs> kind of came to the internet around the time that MySpace and, and social media and so in the, these social media frameworks like made it more accessible to most people. But I was online when I was like 10 or 11. So yeah, yeah I, yeah. I was so Were into you- the kids in the hall. I was part of a, 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 um, a, like an, it's it's kind of like an internet forum or like, like the equivalent of like a Facebook page or something like that today, or like a Tumblr. I was on something like that, but for kids in the hall fanatics. And I even went to, I was like 15, I think maybe 15, 16 went to, and this was a full decade after this show went off the air and it was not popular at the time. So just so you know, this was not, (laughs) I went to a 16 year old girl's birthday party. That was kids in the hall themed. sleepover where we just watched brain candy and screams catchphrases at each other and it was so obnoxious but like that's how deep in it i was i went and found other nerds and we and i and i we talked and analyzed episodes all day every day the same way that normal people probably do like sports and stuff (laughs) it's so weird like being an early online person uh like you were on dial-up my family especially like we didn't get uh high-speed internet for a long time. So like 
you also had to be dedicated when you really wanted to be obsessive and like catch up an entire library that like for a show that was just in syndication, you could, some of the stuff you couldn't find anymore because it was like originally aired on HBO because the show started on HBO and CBC in Canada. Uh, uh-huh. And then the first, I think just few seasons were on HBO in the US and then it moved to CBS. That was, we can talk about that more later if you want to. Uh, and, but it ended in like 94, 95. Uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. that I've tried to watch in like 2000. So what I'm doing is going to sketchy, uh, like, like download, like comedy websites or like using Napster or whatever thing, like a thing was, a, and then spending five hours to download one sketch. Like that's what that game <laughs> you had when you were a kid. If you wanted to see some really obscure interview that Bruce McCullough did when he directed Superstar, he's the director of that Molly Shannon, uh, Will Ferrell oh, movie. Oh, no way. Yeah. He, oh, he, my God. He, became a, he, he got really into uh, a, a directing career path after after Kids in the Hall because he was oh, very auteur in his whole uh, approach. Yeah. So it. I like you had it was a part time job just to be a fucking nerd for the show. Like you had to really be dedicated. I think this is like this is totally the root of where so much like geek gatekeeping comes in just any any kind of geeky circle. It does not matter what you're geeky about. There will always be an elder geek who had to suffer and struggle a lot harder to get into the thing that you're into. Yeah, and and also they they, and they had to be made fun of more of it more for it than you do today and i all to both of those things i just like calm down if you think this is a great set like seminal work why don't you want more people to know about it why are you not excited when you have more people to talk about it with just calm down you nerd seriously (laughs) it was very funny what i remember uh and i don't and maybe it was just in a very like overgeneralized sense uh that they were all guys and like some of them were conventionally good looking by western standards a lot of the kids in the hall fans that I met that were like super fans were women. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, and in general, a lot of the super fans, and it's just kind of, uh, it kind of reminds me how a lot of people don't realize that women uh, or pe- uh, people who ide- uh, identify either like femme or woman in any way, they tend to be the most dedicated and obsessed with, uh, with a lot of fandoms. You wouldn't expect like this, uh, like true crime is like predominantly has a female audience. Like even, I don't oh, know even, why that is, but I am such a true crime nerd. Like yeah. these days, like I listen to my favorite murder to fall asleep at night. Like, that's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or like uh, the dot. The, there's like a really weird like Dahmer tour that you a walking tour where you can go see like where he found most of his victims and stuff. And of the, course the there tour is. guide uh, in the doc I was watching was like, yeah, it's like ninety percent women who come on this tour, and even like some porn categories that you wouldn't think are like predominantly. So it's like very even that is fascinating to me to be like. Like this all seems very much a lot of it was the kids in the hall working through their toxic masculinity on this show, even if it was unconscious on their part. And so I am very fascinated from the how when we get more into it, like, is this problematic? Like, what was I internalizing? Because at the time I found it to be progressive and 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 to subvert in ways that that punched up. And and now I got to go back and question, is that entirely the case? Knowing more about how, what I knew about like what men were like at the time, what these men in particular were like. <laughs> um, how old were you when you started to track though, that like kids in the hall was really problematic? I think it was when I really started w- working more professionally because I Started really performing comedy, uh, just in its reps, getting training in it. Uh, wasn't getting paid or anything. Like when I was eighteen, uh, mm-hmm. and then 
kept on it around 2010, 11, I got here to LA and started, you know, doing my training and being inside of the community, I think is what gave me a much better understanding of the level uh, of just how difficult it is to do work in comedy that isn't preachy, but also isn't problematic as hell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And I think it was when I started to be able to deconstruct my own work and the work of my peers that way that I was able to be more honest with some of my heroes uh, that they aren't necessarily always approaching things with the best politics or the, or the greatest ethics. And I just have to like any other artist, you know, you know, uh, can you still enjoy the work knowing who the artist is, uh, knowing what the artist does, or can you still enjoy the work? Even though today it, we cannot hold, we, it just would not be allowed to be made under the same social standards. We just have different social con- uh, contracts in place. So uh, yeah, I think, probably around in my twenties was when I was able to go, Oh, that was fucked up. Probably shouldn't have laughed at that at the time. <laughs> was it, was it something that you perceived as like fucked up in general or, or fucked up towards you? That's a, that's a great question. I think it's twofold. I think a lot of it was like, it was fucked up in that it was the more nuanced microaggressiony sort of problematics. For the most part, like I'm sure that there are sketches that are just wildly sexist that I just am not thinking of. But for the most part, it wasn't like, oh, women are useless. And they, you know, they're fucking uh, like the, the, the overt way from the because it's being delivered from a male point of view about women. The, the kids would try to write complicated women. And it was the nuance of like, oh, that doesn't really ring true to the experience that I have. How much were you consulting with women like the Kathy and Kathy characters? They were two uh, secretary characters played by uh, Scott Thompson and Bruce McCullough. They were uh, two women named Kathy, but one was with a K and one was with a C, very distinct. And they worked in the <laughs> office uh, back to back and they would just sit, they spend their whole day gossiping. Uh, and it was exquisitely written uh, characters, but it was still about two women who did nothing but gossip about other people. Right. Uh, and, and had not a whole lot interesting things to talk about outside of, you know, their own social structure within this corporate office where they were competing with all the other women there. Uh, and it didn't help my, cause, and at, cause at the time I was, uh, I was pretending to be a woman myself. And so I was like really taking in a lot of those things probably in a way and like misunderstanding like what my own agency could be within, you know, professional spheres or in the yeah. case of Scott Thompson, uh, because he was held that Cause you have to remember Scott Thompson was trying to be an out and loud faggot before Ellen came out and like got all the basically the credit for being like one of the first gay, visible gay people on TV. He was doing it at a time when nobody wanted to see it. And he was doing pieces like running faggot. And I'm still like uh, running faggot is a, a, is a piece that's uh, it's a sung like short musical number about a, a Paul Bunyan kind of folk hero called the running faggot <laughs> who can run from any of the thing, any of the things that you need to run for your life from. Like it would be like, uh, running faggot, running free. And then they would just go to little act outs where like Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald come out and go, yeehaw, we're walking, talking stereotypes. Yeehaw. And then they would like, just do like, oh, see that faggot better beat on him. And then it would come back into the music part of like running faggot, running free. Oh and God. I love that we were really at a time when hate crimes were just, you know, when, when the, the Tweaky defense was still completely defensible, 
mm-hmm. at a time when, you know, all of these, like the time, the only time you heard about gay people on TV was when somebody got murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways it was really subversive and liberating just to see uh, a gay man on TV saying, yeah, I am a faggot, you know, be, be buddy Cole and be like, I don't care if you don't get half of these references mm-hmm. uh, to a straight audience. Those things were liberating, but also, there really were times where being gay was the butt of the joke. Um, in, in, in the in the film Brain Candy, a lot of it has to do with uh, his character, like a businessman character, uh, Danny Husk, uh, just coming to terms with the fact that he's gay. But a lot of those things that the the devices that in context that which it was used are, are are gay stereotypes, and they're very much just like fit into the mold of a bear like what Scott Thompson is an able-bodied, uh, cis white middle-class man with that sort of frame of reference and be, and because we had such scarce resources of what gay representation in media could be, especially if you're a little closeted idiot like me, (laughs) you really took in and been like, that is what the gay experience is. Yeah. Is you have like, I, you know, I, you had me in 2000 thinking the only way, Cause I was like, okay, in this pipe dream universe where I ever could live as myself as a gay man, if I'm going to go meet the love of my life, I'm, I have to go do it in a public bathroom and hope nobody catches me. Mm-hmm. Like I have to go cruise. Like mm-hmm. I had no idea like how much any of that was still like, you know, like culturally relevant to me at that time because I just didn't yeah. know better. <laughs> it's like, Comedy is, correct me if this sounds stupid because I know you well, uh, comedy is, is like this medium where its whole job is to reflect back like the most the most extended, the most, uh, dis- the, the most exaggerated version of reality so that you can point out what's ridiculous about it. But the thing is, if you're not yeah. watching it with that critical lens uh, uh, all the time, uh, or even if you are, it's really easy to internalize that comedy is reflecting back. This is the way that the world should be and the way that people will feel about you. Like for me, coming to uh, Kids in the Hall specifically, but just sketch comedy in general as a cisgender lady, um, when the joke is on women and the joke is on men pretending to be women, what I'm seeing is a commentary on how men feel about women and therefore how women shouldn't be. And it becomes an instruction manual of how I should behave so that I don't become the butt of this joke. Yeah. And I like what you said. I think the most important and uh, my, my general taste tend to be that comedy should, like you said, reflect society. I think uh, in its most holistic sense, if I'm using holistic, right, I am a dumb person. Uh, <laughs> uh, comedy basically is just making somebody who's taking in what you're saying or doing have an expectation and then not giving it to them, surprising them. That's what la- laughter is a surprise response. Yeah. And so a lot of comedy for a long time, and that, and it's still today when somebody's just like, if it's funny, it's funny. What they're really saying is, if I got your ass, I got your ass. If you laughed, that means it's funny because I surprised you. I made you not expect what I was about to say. And so you do have a lot of, a lot of jokes. Cause like, you know, there is not a larger cultural uh, analysis that can be done for somebody for like watching your friend trip and eat shit. You're just going to laugh. Cause it's funny. <laughs> you didn't expect them to, to trip and eat shit. And they did. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Uh, and, and comedy is also uh, getting to voyeuristically watch suffering on somebody else. I forget who said it. Uh, if it, I don't, I, it feels like Mel Brooks, but that probably means it's not of like uh 
Uh, tragedy uh, is I trip. I mean, tragedy is I trip is, and break my tooth. Uh, oh no, it's just me getting a paper down. cut. Yeah. Oh I, yeah. yeah. Tragedy is me getting a paper cut. Comedy is you falling down a manhole and dying. Yeah. No, it's totally. It's that's that's really not wrong. Yeah. So that's where I. That's how I approach what comedy even is. If I'm getting like really academic about it, it's just like I, I love. How I say academic, and then I and then I summon up. I got your ass. So that's a joke. <laughs> I wish that when I'd first watched this this show, I wasn't thinking of it in comparison with Saturday Night Live, but instead in comparison with Monty Python's Flying Circus, because there are a lot more. Yeah. Um, there's just there, there's just a lot more familial resemblance between the two of them, especially in the way that uh, you know they deal with they they deal with men dressing as women. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, I was so because I'm this nerd, I found this really cool uh, scholarly article called, uh, by a, a guy named Adam Wybray, who's at mm-hmm. uh, Exeter University. And it's called uh, I'm Crushing Your Binaries, Drag and Monty Python and Kids in the Hall. Mm-hmm. And it's it's too dense and too complex for me to synthesize completely. So I'm not going to try because it would be doing a disservice. But like uh, something something some, something that he brings up near the end two two quotes that i want to bring up that i thought were really compelling is one he quotes carol cleveland who uh appeared in monty python's flying circus mm-hmm. anytime they needed a an actual actor. girlfriend character or but yeah they or they foil only like used, a straight man foil right yeah but they they only ever used an actual woman if they wanted there to be a sexy woman on because none of them ever played sexy women so she yeah. says she's quoted as saying Young men like that, by which she means young women growing up in Britain's public school system, uh, (laughs) grow up thinking there is only two types of ladies, the young, giggly, sexy girl and the old bag. And they played the old bags. So that's one thing that I think is really apt and astute. And then there's a quote from from Wybray himself where he says, uh, while the pythons do not truly inhabit their female roles, the kids express an authentic aspect of their identity as feminine and or queer men through their nuanced female impersonation. All right. Now, I don't know this white brain, but I'm going to have to push back a little bit today. And I'm very happy to uh, to, to state my reasons why. Now, Great. Uh, now Canada, where the uh, kids in the hall was, uh, you know, where they're from and where it's shot, part of the British Commonwealth. So they have a lot of that sensibility of the Python sensibility. Cause like Python is basically what sketch comedy was in the seventies, like mm-hmm. uh, outside of America. Uh, mm-hmm. And they influenced even SNL, like everything that we were ingesting. Um, and so they have that influence uh, coming through them. But I would also say that the kids in the hall did the exact same thing, but they did a little bit with a little bit more nuance just because they came a couple decades later. Uh uh, there are there there is also precedents of them using uh, women care women actors only when they needed a sexy woman like uh, Nev Campbell. She actually has yeah, a, yeah. That's one of her first on screen appearances on TV was playing yes. Rizzo's uh, girlfriend in a sketch. And I would say the reason why I think the kids in the hall did a better job portraying women, but did not quite get there, was because of their own. Uh, their own, like they just didn't understand what they didn't know at the time. Uh, there, uh, Dave Foley actually talks about uh, what political collect. Uh, correct, uh, Dave Foley actually talks about what uh, political correctness is to him in an interview from a few years back. He basically just says to us, political correctness means you just make sure you know what you're talking about when you write comedy. If you don't know the context, if you don't know references, 
uh, you're going to do a weaker job. And that's where it becomes offensive is because it's just very obvious. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I really like that, actually. Uh, the reason why I would say that they were limited was at the time, these were five uh, working class to upper middle class uh, white men uh, from, uh, you know, living in a very like Western patriarchal society. Uh, when Scott Thompson joined the Kids and All, he talks about this on Lost, the Lost Culturistas podcast. I highly recommend it if you mm-hmm. uh, want to learn more about like just queer theory and comedy in general. Uh, he talks about early comedy for him in the in the 1980s. He tried to be a stand-up before that, uh, but the explicit homophobia was just too much to make it a viable career for him. Like he would have the host go out and be like, this next guy just gave me a blowjob on stage. I hope he doesn't oh, give me so AIDS, gross. Scott Thompson. And then come out and like people would heckle him and like nobody would help him. Uh, and then when he first started doing stuff with the kids in the hall, it, you know, we look back on it with a very rosy lens of like, oh, they accepted him for who he was. We had, we got running faggot, you know, Buddy Cole. He ta- he admits that he was basically a token by the other kids because that made them more punk to be around a gay man. But in a real way, they did not support him. And they had a lot of internalized homophobia that he had to work them through, even post-kids. Like he's, the, there's a reason why Scott Thompson tended to work a lot on his own. If you, if, you, if you notice, he does like solo character work a lot more, whereas Kevin McDonald, Dave Foley were writing pairs together, and McCullough and McKinney were writing pairs. There is a little bit of like, oh, they just have those relationships. But I also believe a significant amount was like, they did not know how to help Thompson write for gay characters. And they weren't even necessarily uh, interested in them outside of what it did for their social capital. And so that's why I would push back on why I think uh, that the kids in the hall wanted to be better feminists, but like they just had their own internalized misogyny that they couldn't work through because of it. Uh, Another example is in the early shows that they were doing in Toronto, uh, they actually had women performers who were originally on the cast, but for whatever reason, the women would not be available. And the, and the apocryphal, what I feel the apocryphal reason is, I think Foley was, uh, has explained it more, is like, over time, we would just play the women characters because we needed someone to play them. And so they were written like actual women because they were originally intended to be for women, but we couldn't find any. And the we couldn't find any excuse in comedy was just as much bullshit as it is today, even from the lens of what... Uh, where they were at the time, it doesn't make sense because we were fully in the Courtney Love, Riot Girl, you know, Kathleen Hanna wave of feminism. These punk, these punk boys knew better than some of their choices. Hi, it's Abby. Are you having fun yet? If you are, why not take a minute to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts? Ratings help Apple connect us with more listeners like you, and more listeners will eventually lead us to cool things like new guests, live shows, and everything else we need to make better episodes for you. Thanks for your help. I appreciate it. And now, back to the show. It's very recently that we that we really do start. It's it, it's the same with race as we're saying. Like you know, we're only now really asking Tina Fey why she can't write a person of color to save her life. You know what I mean? We're only yeah. now starting to really push back against these systems uh, that the representation becomes detrimental uh, outside of superficial ways. It, we internal. I, I, I some people are really of the it's just a joke mindset. I think that's true to a certain extent. But I also think that 
if we're not careful, and it all goes back to the political correctness thing that fully said, we can accidentally make people internalize misinformation because they passively take it in because they're laughing. And then, you know, that's why if you say like, and feel free to to believe this, I'm a trans person, just by the way, if someone does a joke and they're not trans, they are like implicitly telling the audience it's also okay for them to say that word and stuff like just stuff like that so that's where i think we are with the kids i think that they wanted to be feminists but they just didn't necessarily have all the tools and they definitely didn't have they didn't have some of the the work done uh to rid themselves of misogyny in their own personal lives and i think that's where it shines through but when it comes to the form of uh like allowing women to be interesting outside of being wives and mothers that's where they did excel <laughs> like that on that part that you you see so many different walks of life of women characters uh in the kids in the hall and i think any you other totally uh, any other cross dressers were doing at the time <laughs> yeah it's it's worth noting that uh i haven't yet watched it but there are super cuts on youtube that are just super cuts of all of the women that dave foley plays and <laughs> like and i'll admit dave foley sexually confuse me to a degree that I think I'm still tackling with yeah. right now. If you think yeah. you go, go and Google young, uh, you know, younger day Foley, he, he like, like has the face to like paint, uh, like barely any makeup on and be a drag queen. It's insane. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> it's an amazing gift, but good comedy. I agree with you. It should have a reason. It should have a point of view. It should be like, that's what the second city model of comedy is. Like it, like they go, for like a, especially like pol- political point of view. Uh, and that's and well, where I think uh, Thompson and, or no, no, uh, Ke- Kevin McDonald and Dave Foley were trained. Well, there, there are, there are places where I see that in kids in the hall. Like one of the sketches, w- w- one of, one of the episodes I watched this past week to kind of refresh is this really, uh, I think smart and astute sketch that starts with um Dave Foley and Scott Thompson, they're both uh, ladies. They're like middle-aged, but they were friends in high school and they're sitting and they're drinking tea. And Scott Thompson goes into the kitchen and asks about the picture of the woman on Dave Foley's fridge. And Dave Foley says, oh, I'm trying to lose weight. That's my husband's mistress. It's there so that every time I go to the fridge, I won't eat. And it's like, it's- Like, in some ways that is um, amazing. That's a phenomenal- And it keeps going. But what it, it keeps going because Scott Thompson is like, this is terrible. You shouldn't be doing that. You need to leave. You need to leave. And then, of course, the husband, Mark McKinney, comes home and uh, just casually mentions that Scott Thompson uh, had a crush on him when they were all in high school. So, of course, Dave Foley tosses Scott Thompson out of her house and goes back to go, goes back to her terrible reality with Mark McKinney. And it's yeah. one of those sketches that you watch that, like, it, it's there to reflect an exaggerated reality of the way that women relate to them uh, of the toxic way that women can relate to themselves and then inflict that upon each other rather than confronting the systemic problems with their relationships and the way they relate to men. And it's a sketch oh, that I watch so and good. go, oh man, that's, that's really smart. But it's not like a, it's not a belly laugh, joyful, funny. It's a, it's a laughter out of pain and pain and rage. And uh, another thing that I think if you're trying to do um, heavier subject matter like that. Uh, if you, if you're, if, a, if you're a comedy writer who's aspiring, uh, and you want to figure out the best way to approach problematic themes, because a lot of people are like, well, we shouldn't have any topics that are, that, that we can't talk about. We should not censor anybody. Uh, there shouldn't be, you know, men should be able to write about women. Straight people should be write, able to write about uh, gay people. Cisgender people should be able to write about, you know, like at all, to all these things to an extent, I think that is very true. 
But I think when you present these things, and especially if you are not part of a group that you are trying to express insight about, make sure that you make it very clear to your audience what is, uh, UCB calls this the unusual thing. I just say, who's, who's wrong? What's fucked up? What, mm-hmm. or what, what is wrong here? Mm-hmm. And if you can, make sure that the audience knows which character or which point of view they should be relating to and make sure it is the person who is saying, this is weird. This is fucked up. This is problematic. Have somebody. And that way name what that, what the game or the premise is of the sketch. And in that case, it was Thompson's character being like, what? No. And in that way, being the avatar for the audience to be like, okay, I know where we are going is, is, is treacherous waters, but I have the safety the safety device of Thompson to let me know that my feelings that this is not true are correct. Cause otherwise correct. if you don't, if you have characters that don't have a very clear perspective of this, if this is wrong or not, that's when you get the audience asking questions and being concerned. And I think that's another thing that I also, a tip I give to comedians is uh, when you're presenting material, don't give your audience questions that they have to be asking in their head because it, whether it's a, uh, a like they just literally don't understand what you're saying contextually or if they're like, that sounded weird. I need to think about that. That means they've stopped listening to you. So even from just like you're fucking up your your uh, audience's uh, ability to, under, to pay attention to you, if you're being problematic and not really anchoring point of view, you're going to have your audience just asking questions when all they should be doing is laughing. And I think that's a lot of why uh, Kids in the Hall that's a lot of the experience of kids in the hall for me is that when I watch it, I'm, I'm, I I get maybe one belly laugh an episode. I spend the rest of the time going, huh, that's that's quite funny. Or, Oh, that's really smart. Or I do not get this. I need to go do some internet research to understand what they're referencing here. Oh yeah. Cause sometimes it's just like, Oh, that's just something out of Canadian uh, pop culture. I have no idea what it is, or that's something that was relevant in 88, but nobody our age has ever heard of it before. Uh, there's a lot of that stuff. And I think that is, that is like a lot of my comedy teachers have said, make sure you're watching, you're watching comedy that, you probably would not have been able to access in your lifetime if you hadn't had the internet. Like go find other people's cultures and watch their shit because your Mm -hmm. work's going to get better than if you keep writing the same way as the people who look exactly like you and went to the same schools. Like there's a reason why people uh, clown so hard on on writers, ironically, who come out of Harvard at this point, because it is just such a stereotype that if you want to be a professional comedy writer, you have to have written for the Lampoon at some point. Mm -hmm. Because that's just what everyone says. Uh, comedy form and structure could even be is you have to write like a white guy or white woman who went to was able to go to Harvard and write for the Lampoon. You have to write (laughs) like somebody who is in the most privileged echelon of society and can only reflect that viewpoint and has not had the life experience of people who are uh, who are are going to receive your comedy. Um, Yeah, um, it's, it's fucked up. Which I want to I want to jump back really quickly to something that's been mm-hmm. sitting in my brain for for a couple of minutes now, and I want to make sure I say it because it makes me feel really smart. Is uh, I think part of sort of the danger of comedy. I mean, what makes it such a such a powerful tool to wield and something that should be used with a certain responsibility is that when people watch comedy, the one thing they don't want is they don't want to be outside the joke. Like nobody no. wants to nobody wants to feel like they don't get it. So people are conditioned to assume what they're seeing is funny and to assume that it's there to be laughed at so that even if it's really fucked up, 
they will internalize it as something as as a laugh they should have as a thing that they should feel and it's not until much later when somebody has walked through it that they'll be able to take it apart so back to this goes back to what you were saying about how if everybody can write about everybody else they have to be really clear about where the power dynamics are and who's the POV character and what the joke should actually be. Yeah. That's and get the means. facts, get the facts straight as they're laying them out. Uh, I really like what you said uh, about like, not about feeling part of it and not being on the outside. And I think that also comes into play when people don't like something because they consider it preachy. Cause if you mm-hmm. are being preached to, that means that you do, that they're, that you are being considered ignorant and therefore on the outside of what is being um, presented to you. So I think, what, totally. I think your point there, like, co- like people reject comedy when they don't feel like they're part of it in a way, whether yeah, they're yeah, getting, yeah. and sometimes they're getting to, uh, and especially pro- problematic stuff. The reason why bullies laugh so hard is because they, they get to, uh, like reverse that and be like, who who do we get to exclude? Who do we get to kick out and other that way? Yeah, yeah. I think you're right on the money there. Um, for, for the kids in the hall, I was trying to think if there was any, like what is the most problematic fave character I have on this show? <laughs> Again, be really messy about it. So trigger warning, I'm going to go ahead and put that out there uh, for what, what we're going to talk about because I, wa- I, f- I figured out who my what my favorite bit is that I think is the worst. Oh, I love uh, that you did this research. I can't wait. Tell me everything. So this is a trigger warning for uh, mental illness, um, uh, the uh, the justice system, and, and and public health system, and uh, also trans identity. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, there are these characters on the kids in the hall. They are played by Kevin McDonald and Dave Foley, uh, who love doing uh, duo characters. They write duos very like uh, them and and Mark McKinney and Bruce McCullough. They work together as much as they do because they feed off of each other and, and can riff off each other like nobody's business. They have mm-hmm. these two characters named the Sizzler Sisters. I think named Jerry and Jerry Sizzler. And the way that they they are a, they are a cabaret act. The first sketch that you see them in is like just at this like like nightclub sort of like maybe an open mic sort of situation. It's not entirely clear. And uh, the MC is like, all right. Now for two clearly, who are clearly women and not two in, uh, insane people, give it up for the Sizzler sisters. And these two men that you can clock are supposed to be men mm-hmm. in, in fright, like wig, like, like barely put on their head wigs, uh, pajamas and bathrobes come on and they go, we're sisters, we're sisters and we're not two clearly insane people. And like over time you slowly, like they just do this really deranged act on, uh, on stage that shows that they like, they, and, and like the, the context of it slowly pours out that they really are two deranged men who broke out of an insane asylum together and are going on a crime spree. And that this, like one of their Joker moments where they just on a whim thought it would be funny to get up on stage and do a number. Mm-hmm. And on its surface is horrifying. And I go, oh, this this probably made me internalize the idea that all trans people are just insane, that they are just like pathologically convincing themselves that they are suffering either from this dysphoria or that the, the in general, if they don't experience dysphoria, that like that they that this still makes them insane just by virtue of believing this to be correct about themselves. And number two, uh, it kind of was like. I feel like them trying to do uh, maybe a parody of what they thought bad drag was at the time, like poking fun 
of like the the more Monty Python projections of of women. Mm-hmm. And then number three, uh, just punching down at at uh, mentally ill people because at the time that was a non thing. You know, yeah. like like mentally ill people, prisoners, the the unhoused. These were all people who were so marginalized in their their social position that it really was not no issue just in a blanket way being like, at least I'm not like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like that being the point of view of the sketches, aren't you glad you're not insane to this degree that your life is so unstable? Uh, and I'm a mentally, I, I have PTSD um, and general anxiety, uh, generalized anxiety disorder and ADHD and all three. Uh, so I'm near, near divergent and uh, have like traumatic uh, uh, anxiety disorders. So, uh, or trauma-based anxiety disorders rather. So I, I have to really wonder how much of that caused me to not even begin my journey of seeking uh, therapy and psychiatric help until I was in my late 20s. And, and mm-hmm. I have to wonder how much around the, the concept of trans panic even in a surface level, like Halloween gag, sort of like of what the Sizzler sisters were, how that contributed to me not feeling safe to come out of the closet as gay and trans until I was 20. I did not come out on any of those things. I did not start going to therapy and taking medication until I was in my Mm thirties. And I have to really ask myself, is it because from the time I was 11, 12, and I was starting to have critical thinking skills, a lot of the advice that I thought was instrumental because I had such a bad home life, a lot of my mentors were comedians. And I have to ask myself, now knowing the politics of so many of them being terrible, mm-hmm. what did they do to my brain? How did they fuck me up? <laughs> I mean, I think it's indisputable that they did because... Uh, Thank uh, you. Uh, <laughs> It's 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 indisputable. Mental health and mental health and uh, queer gender identity has been a punchline of mainstream comedy for years and years, and especially in the comedy that you and I were growing up in, because we're about the same age. And like, I notice it in so many things. I, this is not the subject of this episode, but on a later episode, I want to talk to someone about The Simpsons and about how, especially around like season six through 13, every episode had a joke where being gay was the punchline, where being trans was the punchline. It used very, very um, uh, uh, um, negative language about both and how we all just kind of casually accepted that as okay and legitimately funny. And you don't think about it because you don't want to be outside the joke. Some critical thought around comedy is that like the the comedians are the people who shouldn't have rules and should be allowed to be shocking and should be allowed to be um, to 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 be non-politically correct. Do you think that the desire to uh, (laughs) do you think do you think that the requirement to be careful in one's language and respectful to marginalized groups is inherently hampering to a comedian's ability to be funny? I think in general, if you're overthinking what you're doing, that hurts. I think I am always of the mindset that sometimes you just have to be messy before you're able to put your thoughts together in an articulate way. Mm -hmm. I think like with any skill set, mindfulness takes practice. And like, this is a very non-funny answer (laughs) about all these things about comedy. But what I think, 
is that people are, it's not a question of like what you're allowed to be. It's like, it's it's a question of how much work you're willing to do Mm -hmm. in order to make that joke land and land in a way that uh, isn't bullshit, uh, that makes sense, that understands what it's talking about. Uh, So I think it always comes down to if you're just popping off and saying shit, how are you any different than a five-year-old who just learned that saying shocking things is funny? Mm. How does that like elevate you? And if you don't care, if you're like, I don't care if it's elevated or not, I can't do anything. But if you do want to say that you are a smart comic, if you want to market yourself as a cerebral person in any way, it probably does behoove you to know what the fuck you're talking about when you speak. (laughs) And it just does. It just, I just go, I don't even tell people that they're not funny or that, uh, that, they, that what they're saying is, is problematic anymore. I just tell them they're hacks. I go, <laughs> yeah. how, how are you? How would you be out of place if I just uh, tr- transported you to a vaudeville stage right now outside of like, like, you know, fr- like references they wouldn't get. But like, how is that joke about dames any different than some shit that some dude could have done in the 20s? Right. You're no better than some guy who didn't have a, a high school diploma going around just talking about, uh, take my wife, please. Like, fuck off. That's bo- that's old. Your shit's dusty. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I do. I, I just, uh, I feel like it's more effective to call problematic comedians boring than it is to call them unfunny. Because unfunny is subjective uh, in a way that they can just argue saying that you're coming from an impassioned place. But if you say you're that they're boring, that means that, you're not going to listen to them. And if there's anything a comedian can't stand, it's not getting attention in some way. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> that's so like, yeah, real. Good, good attention, bad attention. A lot of the times doesn't make any sense. So just saying, all right, man, your feedback has been noted or okay, cool. Good job, buddy. That is way more effective with like making these bigots feel stupid. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, that like hurt me by association. Which brings me to like the last the last question, which is, uh, what's your relationship to kids in the hall now? Can you keep it? Do you still enjoy it? Does it still bring you bring you happiness? Oh yeah, um, I like I said, it really just all comes down to the fact that there is just so much more media, more shows, more comedians. Uh, it's not the same as when I was a twelve year old, and you had to look to find comedy i had to like go looking for like college humor uh i had to go looking for like shit on forums now streaming services youtube i can find their entire catalog in the blink of an eye if i want to you know i think all i you know uh i think i just take them for granted more mm-hmm. uh as opposed to i don't have an appreciation for them like i don't think i finished death comes to town uh and I don't even know why that is. I think mm-hmm. it could have just been like, oh, I was, I, I just like, for some reason, it wasn't like really hooking me. I just didn't get into it. So I, I think I'm like, I think I more have a, a deeper appreciation for some of the conventions that they, that they really helped establish. I, I have a deep, deep respect for Scott Thompson in a way that I wasn't ready to reckon with that like he... Mm-hmm shouldered so much and managed to make it so effortlessly funny without compromising his own uh, comedic voice. Uh, Yeah. I think, you know, my crush on Bruce McCullough is not a driving factor. (laughs) Like that sort of thing is not a driving factor in what I, what I watch now. Uh, Yeah. I think now that I just have a greater sense of who I am as a person, I can appreciate what the kids 
did for me. I can still appreciate, you know, they're, they're exquisite, silly uh, characters like uh, Sir Simon Milligan and, and Hecubus, uh, like mm-hmm. two, two dudes who think that they're the most evil creatures in the world, but they're milk toast as hell. I can relate to that any day mm-hmm. <laughs> of thinking I'm, I'm le- like realizing I'm less cool than I actually am. <laughs> totally. So you can still like return to these sketches on YouTube or wherever they're being hosted right now and still find some joy and happiness or, or has like your oh, critical. Absolutely. Go like you go watch. It, it is, it does get a little bit violent, but like you go watch after you listen to this viewer, the citizen Kane. Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald. It is one of the most, uh bonkers sketches I've ever seen. It it's just one of those like surrealism for its own sake sort of things. Mm-hmm. Uh but it's still I, I watched it the other day and I laughed so so hard. I was like, yeah, yeah, they were they were just so much smarter than the rest of us. <laughs> they really were. I mean, like I I I'm I'm one of those people who not only do I not like to be outside the joke, but I don't like to think that I'm not the smartest person in the room, which is what makes <laughs> Spoiler alert, which is uh, what what makes Kids in the Hall so is such a fascinating viewing experience for me is because when I do come back to it, I'm always smarter the second time. And there is more that I get and there is more that I can that I can laugh at um, yeah. for all Even of just they, as being an, an older person and being yeah. like, oh, I've actually lived through that like mid to late 20s experience now. And when I was a teenager, I just did not understand what that was like. No, like so- I didn't understand. I could understand on a base level when Bruce McCullough did a monologue piece called an open letter to the guy who stole my bike wheel. And he had his bike lower from the ceiling, just him on a soundstage and like, just be like, why'd you do it, man? Uh, I could appreciate that for how silly it was. And be like, oh man, that would suck to have a bike stolen. But I didn't understand maybe also like the, the psychic uh, derangement that you feel when you're a city dweller and you are a working class person. And that's your way to get home that day. You come out <laughs> And you're tired, you just worked 12 hours, and you realize somebody stole your fucking bike wheel because you didn't lock it up, okay? You didn't lock it up properly. And he just happened to be one of those kind of people who could say it on uh, on TV. Yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't realize, like, that was the sort of uh, way I would come to appreciate um, them. It's just like, oh, yeah, I now I live in a scam. I am a comedian in my 30s. I understand it uh, a bit better even your warts (laughs) you're able to see yourself reflected in it in ways that you didn't see before at the same time that you're seeing the ways that it it fails to reflect you yeah that's like what with the sizzler sisters i can i can even now just even go like okay well just another long line of ways that queer people get coded as crazy (laughs) you know they're just like that they can be those kind of icons to me the same way that like ursula can be in the little mermaid you know like just reclaim that a little bit (laughs) <laughs> Do you find that uh, that 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 as you grow and you widen your you widen your critical lens and you become more granular and more specific in the way that you take these things apart, does it make it harder for you to enjoy and love them? Oh, I think, I, yeah, I think when you have to do something professional, uh, professionally, it, at, at a certain point, you just know how the sausage is made. To yeah, you know, to use that that sort of like crude term. Uh, it, like in your brain it, it's why uh if you know comedians or hang out with them and some of the sometimes they play this up too hard or have to ask like why are you still here you'll notice that comedians don't laugh as hard at things right like at a certain point they just you're just uh you you feel like you've seen every premise under the sun but you also just like get to a point where it's harder to laugh at things it's harder to have that thing surprise you and then the other side of it is 
I also am constantly thinking about if it didn't work, what was the structure? Did they forget to put the, the, the funniest word in the, in the joke as the last thing that you say, mm-hmm. you know, just like very, like just breaking apart. Or if, if I watch a movie, I'm like, Oh, that joke didn't land because they didn't open with an establishing shot. So we can see where the fuck we are. Like I yeah. said, it all goes back to, are you making the audience ask questions in their head that they shouldn't be, that they're distracted. It's the same as like if uh, the audio quality in something is bad, you only notice that you have a, a shitty sound mixer if the, if the sound is shitty. You won't right. think about it otherwise. I yeah, think no, that's it's so hard true. To enjoy things. It's harder to enjoy things because you're more likely to notice the flaws than somebody who doesn't do it professionally. And that's what makes it harder. Reed, thank you so, so much for like not just coming on to my podcast, but bringing your A++ game to my podcast. Like, I Oh, oh I was afraid I didn't get as much into the context of like the show and the characters. So thank you. We like, don't oh, man, have time to get into any more context than we did. And everything we got okay, into okay, was good. so good. I, I, at least people would have like favorite reference. Thank you. Yeah, I, I hope I, I hope I uh, yeah, gave people a good primer, uh, if not of the, of the, the, uh, the subject matter of why it resonated for me and why certain things don't resonate as hard anymore. I think you absolutely did. And I am like, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just so like thrilled and grateful that you brought this on and that you brought your whole self to bringing this on. So thank you so much. Um, if listeners uh, want to find more of you and what you do out in the internets, where should they look? Uh, on Instagram or Twitter, I am at that T H A T dang D A N G dingus d-i-n-g-u-s uh and yeah i i am a a weird artist in that i the hustle is the hustle being everything is not everything to me so i only put things out when i want to (laughs) i'm not like hey i'm gonna go do these 15 let me plug these 15 like live comedy shows that i'm gonna get there and there'll be two people there and you'll all look miserable so i don't know what exactly you might go there to see Uh, but whatever, I do have something to say. I say it. So that's where you'll find those things. (laughs) And if you want to find more of me, you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Abby Wild. Um, Thank you everyone for joining us this week. We'll be back next week with another childhood favorite that's become a grown-up regret. Bye.